Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, we're glad you're with us today in the Three Martini Lunch. Hope you like the new intro. Jim is here. I'm Greg. And Jim, let's talk about our good, bad, and crazy martinis. But today we have all good to start out the week, so hopefully that's a good omen for the week to come. We're also brought to you today by Quip Electric Toothbrushes. Quip starts at just $25, and you'll get your first refill pack of brushes free at getquip.com slash martini. And uh, we'll talk about that a lot more in just a moment. So, Jim, let's get to our first good martini. And it's really a takeoff from uh, Friday's crazy martini. And that's uh, Hillary Clinton uh, suspecting that Russia plans to run Tulsi Gabbard, although she didn't use her name uh, specifically in the podcast, uh, as a third-party candidate to help Trump get reelected. Uh, for those who weren't here or haven't heard this uh, since Friday, uh, here's uh, what Hillary said in the podcast with uh, former Obama campaign guru David Plouffe. They're also going to do third-party again. And I'm not making any predictions, but I think they've got their eye on somebody who's currently in the Democratic <laughs> primary and are grooming her to be the third-party candidate. She's a favorite of the Russians. They have a bunch of sites and bots and other ways of supporting her Mm -hmm. so far. And that's assuming Jill Stein will give it up, which she might not because she's also a Russian uh, asset. Yeah, Yeah, she's a Russian asset. I mean, totally. And so they know they can't win without a third-party candidate. And so I don't know who it's going to be, but I will guarantee you they'll have a vigorous third-party challenge in the key states that they most need it. So Hillary's having some issues, and I'm not even kidding about that anymore. But uh, later on Friday afternoon, Tulsi Gabbard uh, firing back with both barrels on uh, this Twitter thread. Great. Thank you, Hillary Clinton. You, the queen of warmongers, embodiment of corruption and personification of the rot that has sickened the Democratic Party for so long, have finally come out from behind the curtain. From the day I announced my candidacy, there has been a concerted campaign to destroy my reputation. We wondered who was behind it and why. Now we know. It was always you, through your proxies and powerful allies in the corporate media and war machine, afraid of the threat I pose. It's now clear that this primary is between you and me. Don't cowardly hide behind your proxies. Join the race directly. And then over the weekend... Of course, she's going to try to make hey fundraising and otherwise out of Hillary Clinton's ridiculous move here. Here's what uh, Tulsi threw up on her uh, social media. I've served in Congress now for nearly seven years, serving on the Foreign Affairs Committee, the Armed Services Committee, the Homeland Security Committee, and I am not afraid to openly express my love for our country. But if they can falsely portray me as a traitor, then they can do it to anyone. And in fact, that's exactly the message that they want to get across to you. That if you stand up against Hillary and the party power brokers, if you stand up to the rich and powerful elite and the war machine, they will destroy you and discredit your message. But here is the truth. They will not intimidate us. They will not silence us. We are not here just to protest their corruption. I am running for president to take the Democratic Party and our country back from the corrupt elite. Jim, I'm pretty sure by late Friday there was a severe popcorn shortage in uh, conservative parts of this country uh, in watching Tulsi uh, hammer back and then again over the weekend. So um, obviously she's going to milk this uh, for all it's worth. Hillary's just seems more desperate all the time. How long do you think we can uh, keep this soap opera going? 
Well, sad to say, Greg, it looks like it's sort of dying down today, even though it shouldn't. You know, the Tulsi Gabbard campaign is going to do her best to keep this uh, front and center in the, in the campaign and in the news environment as possible. Because let's face it, if you're Tulsi Gabbard, this is the most exciting thing that's happened since you filleted Kamala Harris on that debate stage a couple of weeks ago. As I wrote in a, in a corner post on Friday, Greg, you can have a whole bunch of beefs and disagreements with Tulsi Gabbard's uh, foreign policy viewpoints. Calling her a Russian asset, like you really should, considering how what we just went through with all the Russiagate stuff and the Mueller report and all that stuff, you really shouldn't make that kind of accusation unless you've got evidence to back it up. And you could just kind of hear every single Democrat, both running for president and just hoping for a uh, victory over Trump in 2020, groaning and, ro- and just say, why did Hillary have to come out? Why did, why couldn't she just keep walking in the woods near Chappaqua? And I thought it was really kind of fascinating, the Tulsi Gabbard challenge. Why don't you run, Hillary? Because we've seen how that turns out, haven't we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is like a huge opportunity for Gabbard. I do think she's sort of playing to type in saying that this is, you know, uh, it couldn't just be, you know, Hillary, you're wrong. It had to be queen of warmongers. You know, it's <laughs> this very Game of Thronesy title throwing. This is our good martini because, this, as you said, this is going to create a popcorn shortage. I was just giggling all day Friday afternoon. Yes. Uh, this was too crazy to not uh, bring up, to, even though I feel like it's kind of slid down from the... Uh, uh, the news cycle, but you know, Gabbard could very well qualify for that next debate, and my guess is she will bring it up at some point. Um, Booker was kind of tweeting out funny gifts of his, you know, eye popping disbelief uh, type response. I think somebody else made some sort of statement. Hillary Clinton's old spokesman said, "If the nesting doll fits, you know, like it's really kind of bizarre." And I think what you're seeing with Tulsi Gabbard is a little bit of a reflection of what happened to Howard Schultz not that long ago. Tulsi Gabbard was considered the future of the progressive movement and a, you know, rising Democrat star in good standing. When she went to Syria and met with Assad, it definitely took a shot. There's no two, two ways about that. But as I laid out in the corner post Friday, I think Tulsi Gabbard is just flat out mistaken on this. But I don't think it's, you know, she's been brainwashed. I don't think it's she's been bought off by the Russians. I don't think she's being strong armed. I think she genuinely thinks that we can build a better world if the U.S. just lets dictators handle the challenge of Islamists and otherwise lets them do what they want as long as they keep attacks away from us. If you have that philosophy towards the Middle East and a lot of other parts of the world, your worldview is going to align a great deal with that of Vladimir Putin because Vladimir Putin wants the United States to be as minimally involved in the world stage as possible. Hillary, you know, it's it, it, two, two fascinating aspects here. One is that we now have two big contenders in the 2016 presidential campaign who run around making uh, sketchy accusations against opponents. I don't know about you, Greg. I thought one was enough. Um, the second is that Hillary and Trump both share this habit of whatever argument they want to make. They have an amazing ability to pick the least persuasive, least supported by the, like if she wanted to say Tulsi Gabbard just flat out putting the democratic party in the wrong direction. Fine. That's a fair argument. You can do whatever you want with that. But the whole, you know, she's, and Jill Stein is secretly working with the Russians and Tulsi Gabbard's going to run third party. I mean, that's probably the most intriguing uh, of, of the you know, theories that Hillary is floating out here. But again, they're theories. I haven't seen it. I think, she, I think Tulsi Gabbard has pledged to support the Democratic nominee. Um, I'm not certain that would be this huge advantage for Trump. I mean, again, she's getting 2% in the Democratic primary polls right now. I think she may have just hit 3% in one of the polls, which might qualify her for the next debate. So, um, but it's just really weird to see a candidate at 2 or 3% dominating the headlines for a day and over this, you know, bonkers accusation from Hillary. And, oh, by the way, look, a lot of folks argue 
with Trump, isn't it time to introduce the, uh, you know, look at the constitutional amendment for mental impairment and all that stuff. Trump says a lot of crazy things. Look, Hillary's saying some crazy things right now. And if she'd been elected in 2016, maybe we would be dealing with a bonkers Hillary Clinton as president instead of the oh-so-sane president we have right now. <laughs> well, it's fun to watch uh, who's defending Tulsi, mainly the other outliers, Andrew Yang and Marianne Williamson. Yes, yeah, she's still officially running, even though she's not qualifying for debates these days. Uh, Beto went on record saying that uh, he didn't think she was a Russian asset and thanked her for her service and so forth. It's also interesting to know uh, that Mike Gravel uh, has stuck up for her, which I'm sure will be the way to uh, ingratiate her to more folks in the mainstream of the Democratic Party. In other Party. news, Mike Gravel is still alive. <laughs> so uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens here. But um, Gabbard's got a story to tell now, and uh, we'll see how well she can tell it and how many opportunities she has to tell it. All right. Speaking of storytelling, uh, let's go to uh, our, our discussion of Quip Electric toothbrushes here. Jim, I knew you and I were uh, effective at our, our sales pitches. I didn't realize uh, how effective until a few weeks back when we were pitching Quip. Uh, my wife's a morning person, so she often listens to the podcast the morning after. And uh, so I, I, I get up the, in the morning and she says, hey, good podcast. And I ordered Quip Electric toothbrushes for the kids. I'm like, oh, all right, very good. Well, so so they come, and I'm like, well, let's see how the kids handle electric toothbrushes. And uh, let's just say they love them. The little one, she runs up to me and just says, Daddy, Daddy, it buzzes. And then you have to explain to her that you have to move it around in your mouth uh, when uh, when the pulses happen. My older daughter is like the Mussolini of this thing because she is as precise as humanly possible on when to move it when the pulses come. And if you tell her it's time to wrap it up, even like three seconds before the thing shuts down, um, she wants none of it. So she's she's totally hooked already. And the kids brush is just one of the things with uh, with Quip that uh, is fantastic for your family. Uh, the kids brush is the same as the original version, just tweaked for smaller mouths. Kids are inspired by the organization that my older daughter loves so much to brush better and more often with oral care that looks and feels like the products the adults in their life use and they're proud to use them they're excited to use them and they help them develop a grown-up routine without the childish gimmicks that you sometimes see with other toothbrushes despite anything else you want to say about greg's daughter she did make the trains run on time in italy (laughs) quip is the remarkably simple electric toothbrush created by dentists and product designers to focus on what actually matters for your oral health healthier habits quip's sensitive vibrations with a built-in timer Guide gentle brushing for the dentist-recommended two minutes with 30-second pulses ensuring an even clean. Quip automatically delivers brush heads to you every three months for clean new bristles right on schedule. And the sleek, intuitive design is simple to use and comes with a travel cap that doubles as a mirror mount. Simply put, Quip makes brushing something you actually want to do twice a day. Your oral care matters, so ditch the gimmicks and grab a Quip. And the Quip, as I mentioned before, starts at just $25, and you'll get your first refill pack of brushes free when you sign up at getquip.com slash martini. And the brushes come in every three months. is fantastic. You don't have to keep track of anything. They just show up. This is a simple way to support our show and start brushing better, but you have to go to getquip.com slash martini to get your first refill pack free. Go right now to getquip.com slash martini. All right, Jim, let's move to our second good martini now. And I don't know if this is uh, hopeful thinking or wishful thinking or optimistic thinking, but your uh, lead item in the jolt today is the fact that uh, President Trump 
despite sending Mick Mulvaney out there to explain uh, a very difficult decision to uh, host the G7 summit in 2020 at the Trump property at Doral in Florida, which did not go over well for Mr. Mulvaney that day or on the Sunday shows, I might add, uh, President Trump has decided that uh, he's not going to Host it there after all. Uh, as you report, Jim, in the morning jolt, you got a lot of blowback from Republicans saying, look, <laughs> there's only so much we can defend here. Uh, we're playing defense on so many different issues. Could you at least leave us alone on this? So apparently Trump relented on that. And you're wondering if maybe, just maybe, this could be the, the start of a movement towards uh, some more sensible positions on some other issues. Yeah, look, there have been a lot of times where the president, when someone says, Mr. President, for your own good, for the good of your administration, for the good of your congressional allies, you should do X. Trump will feel that that is an attempt to control him, and he will do not X. Uh, there are a lot of good examples of this. I think one of my favorites is when uh, he was having his call with Vladimir Putin. At the top of the briefing notes, it said in big capital letters, do not congratulate. And of course, the very first thing Trump did on the call was congratulate Vladimir Putin on his recent election, which of course was not free or fair. Think back to the Brett Kavanaugh fight, right? And a whole bunch of conservatives who might have been either never Trump or Trump skeptical, Trump weary, however you want to characterize it, went to the mattresses and were completely willing to defend Brett Kavanaugh and were willing to, you know, say, hey, we, we will, you know, fight tooth and nail to get this confirmation through. Now, why was that? Well, because it was good on the merits, right? I mean, Brett Kavanaugh was a guy, was a judge who almost every conservative looked at his record, looked at his character, looked at everything else, felt like the... Uh, the allegations from Christine Blasey Ford were uh, didn't add up, didn't have uh, supporting evidence, were contra- you know, contradicted by the people she said were there, et cetera. And you know, when, when the administration has a good case on the merits, a whole bunch of people on the right side of the spectrum are willing to come out and defend them. When you don't have a good case on the merits, you know, like, like I can see what Trump gets out of holding the G7 at the resort. I don't see what anybody else in conservative world or what any other Republicans get. What they do get is a massive you know, headache of they have to defend something, in which it appears the president is using the power of his offices to benefit one of his businesses. And that's just not why we elected this guy. Um, a lot of this stuff, I think, can be kind of the, the Democrats can over, over, overstate the importance of. Um, as noted, when Trump uh, took office, it's not like you know, it's not like he can put everything into a blind trust. It's not like he's going to forget that he owns the Trump hotels. And when you know governments go over and uh, book hotel rooms and book conference rooms and talk about it, uh, go put out tweets about how terrific the Trump hotel is, yes, of course they're sucking up to the president. Is he going to change policy because they said his hotels were swell? I don't think so. It would be nice to elect a president who wasn't so uh, easily flattered and things like that. But ultimately, it's not about the money. It's not like they're bribing him into changing their policy because they decided to buy a hotel room here or rent a conference room there or something like that. Would I like an administration that watched this stuff a little more closely? Sure. Would it be nice to say this administration could say Trump had never benefited from any expenditure at any of his hotels or resorts? Yeah, and a smarter administration would have said, we're not going to spend any money at any Trump hotels or resorts because we don't want to add Uh, create any, you know, the same thing with Hunter Biden. We don't want to create the perception of a conflict of interest. It took a while for Trump to get there. And he kind of did it in a a little tweet storm of of how ridiculous everyone was being or something. Finally, he he heard from Republicans. He heard from people like, look, usually we can defend you. We can't defend this. Uh, Look at Mulvaney sweating on, on, you know, the the morning news shows and stuff like that. Eventually, Trump reversed himself. This is good. This is a sign that he listens to people. This is a sign that he does periodically stop stepping on rakes 
and he does kind of go, okay, if I don't, if, if this fight doesn't get me anything and puts all of my allies in a tough position, maybe I should reorient myself and steer in a different direction. Um, now, obviously, since I wrote that this morning, everybody's saying, Jim, you're being ludicrously optimistic. This is Trump. He's not going to change, et cetera, et cetera. Look, when the president makes the right decision, I try to encourage him just to keep going in that right direction. So good for you, Mr. President. I haven't a chance, had a chance to say that too much lately. Let's avoid these issues in the past and focus on issues where you've got a much stronger argument on the merits. All right, let's move on to our third good martini now, Jim. And it might mean we're done with another Castro. We're already done with Fidel. Uh, <laughs> we're done with Raul, at least politically for now, I think. Uh, but Julian is still running for president, but possibly not for much longer. And uh, he's not right now in line to make the November debate stage. And his campaign is basically saying that qualifying for that is a do or die. So they're taking a page out of the take your pick, the Oral Roberts handbook or the Cory Booker handbook and saying, if I don't have this much money by this date, I'm going to have to get out. It worked for Cory Booker. He said he needed $1.7 million in 10 days. Uh, and he ended up meeting that goal. Now Castro is saying that he needs $800,000 by the end of the month, so within 10 days, or else he's not going to be able to stay in. His campaign manager is named Maya Rupert. And Jim, see if you can count the number of uh, questionable statements that are declared as facts in this paragraph. Secretary Castro has run a historic campaign that has changed the nature of the 2020 election and pushed the Democratic Party on a number of big ideas. No. Nope. Unfortunately, we do not see a path to victory. That, Correct. <laughs> that doesn't include making the November debate stage. And without a significant uptick in our fundraising, we cannot make that debate. Now, the fun part here is he's already actually hit the number of individual donors he needs, but he says he needs the money to get the message out to improve his poll numbers because you need 3% in any four surveys or 5% in two polls in the early voting states. So, Jim, what do you think? Are we going to be Castro-free by November 1st? Look, Fidel, Raul, Julian, and then after that, we're going after the convertibles, Greg. <laughs> um, you know, 3%, 3%. <laughs> this is, you know, because we, we kind of got this complaint about the last round of debates. And you're like, God, the DNC threshold is 3%. Why? You know, this really shouldn't be that hard. And it's one of the, if, you, if you're not getting... Yes, there's a lot of candidates, but you know what? Welcome to welcome to politics, right? Some cycles you're going to have a whole bunch of candidates. If you want to be president of the United States, maybe you need to be a bit more of a household name before you start running. Then I, I know probably Julian Castro is shocked that being Secretary of Housing and Urban Development didn't put his name on the lips of everyone in America on a regular basis. Um, the other thing that's you know, worth noting is that you know, it's, okay, well, it's, it's his uh, it's his tough luck. Um, he's from Texas. He was mayor of San Antonio. Uh, you know, it's, that's not near Iowa. It's not a natural state for him. It's not near New Hampshire. Not really near Nevada and then South Carolina. So that none of the states are really near his geographic base of support. Texas doesn't get polled all that much for the Democratic presidential primary. But when it does, Julian Castro is at like two to three percent there. Buddy, this is your home state, right? If you can't make it there, it's like the inverse of the old song about New York. If you can't make it there, you can't make it anywhere. Um, so that's where where Castro is here. So I, I'm kind of amused every time they do the Oral Roberts route of, if you don't give me money, Jesus is going to call me home. I, I was a little bit disappointed uh, that, that Cory Booker made it um, because he kind of liked to see them get called out on this. Oh, you said if you didn't get the money, you're out. So uh, we will see what happens 
it's very possible that Castro does not qualify for the next debate. And if he doesn't, it'd be kind of fair to ask. So, um, Julian, what are you doing here? And he could say, I'm not Julian. I'm my evil twin brother. <laughs> Jim, and then what did Booker do with that money? He, he got to the debate stage. Good for him. And then what did he do with it? He's like, can we just stop arguing? Can we yeah, just yeah. all just get along here? That must do well in some focus group because he keeps going back to that well over and over again. And most of us watching are like, this is a democratic debate. You're going to see some debating. Suck it up. Um, and he, you know, but, but the other thing that's so kind of intriguing about Booker, and I think you could probably make something of an argument like this for William Custer as well. Probably the biggest gaffe or, or wacky moment from Cory Booker in any of the debates was when they're asked to talk about their setbacks in life and Cory Booker gave, in my mind, the most Cory Booker answer ever when the documentary made about him when he ran for mayor didn't win an Oscar. <laughs> he lost to the Penguins. Yeah, 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 Senator, we've all been there. Tough break. It, uh, you know, yeah, that's, that's a really disappointing professional setback. Um, that, that, yeah, but by and large, Cory Booker's had pretty good debates, and it's meant nothing. Right. You look at the, the evaluations. I watched all the debates. And I was like, Cory Booker generally has pretty good answers. He tries to get into that preacher's cadence. And but, you know, Cory Booker hasn't had a bad debate yet. And other than when Julian Castro tried to go after uh, Joe Biden for being old and losing his mind, Castro hasn't had yet. He, he really shut down Beto in one of the early exchanges. This, too, has done really nothing for his poll number. So this idea that, oh, I've got to be on the debate stage. You know, we were talking earlier in this podcast about Tulsi Gabbard. She uh, goes after other candidates, probably tougher than anybody else. She's still in that 2 or 3% range. So this idea of, oh, you, I just need the money, and then I'll be on the debate stage, and then you'll see my numbers rocket up. Look, it's October 21st. It's getting late. We've had four or five debates now, guys. If, if, if you were going to catch fire, you probably would have caught fire by now. Either way, you know, let's see. I, I just want to see Julian Castro in a big televangelist uh, outfit with you know, the organ playing and uh, the choir singing behind him and getting on his knees, begging viewers for donations. I guess I shouldn't give him that idea, Greg. The sixth debate, I'm sure, will be the charm, though, because the, <laughs> the first five work so well. And speaking of polls, uh, there's one in Iowa taken entirely after the debate, but before the uh, Gabbard-Clinton blow up. Biden, 18, Warren, 17, Buttigieg up to 13, Sanders down at nine. And then there's one candidate at three percent. And it's Tom Steyer. Good luck, Castro and Beto and Booker and everybody else who's trying to scrape to four or five percent in some of these polls. Undecided's actually winning at 29 percent, by the way. Let's hear it for undecided. Undecided's never lost. Undecided's never let you down. So Undecided is the strongest candidate this side of Irving Schmidt left. Only generic Republican is more popular. Also known as Tim Pawlenty. <laughs> Jim, see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thank you for being with us today on the Three Martini Lunch. Don't forget to visit our friends over at Quip and get your toothbrush and yet refill pack of brushes for free. Get Quip.com slash martini. And join us again right here again on Tuesday for the Three Martini Lunch.